You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Paw Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. You are listening to our Iditarod coverage here on KVRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site. You can find all of our episodes over on firstpaw.media. And if you're so inclined, make sure you head on over to patreon.com slash firstpawmedia and you will get some very exclusive perks. And I am joined tonight by my co-hosts, Tony and Michelle, and I'm Robert. Tony, how's it going tonight? Going really well. Another uh, bluebird day down on the Kenai Peninsula. So uh, I know that it's just suckering us in and we're going to get one of those spring snowstorms eventually. But for now, I'm enjoying it. For sure. And Michelle, how's it going on your end? You know, I'm going to have to say that it is not going to snow again this year. Um, I have actually been spending the last couple of days working out in Palmer, and you can literally see the tops of the mountain just melting away in the sunlight, um, glistening, if you will. And it's absolutely beautiful, but it's making me very concerned about ice jams that are going to be occurring Yeah, and I have to teach my next class. I'm teaching Dog Mushing 101 next weekend with the students from the University of Alaska Anchorage. So it should make an interesting weekend for sure with those guys. Hopefully it is successful. So let's jump into today's coverage of the Iditarod. Uh, Lots of people taking their 24-hour rests as we predicted last night. So I'm going to list off the top 10 and we have Wade, Jesse, Brent, Aaron, Deke, Ryan, Richie, Pete, Matthew, and Eddie. And my goodness, has Eddie gotten a lot of press over the last couple of days? And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that in just a little bit. And in the back of the pack, not a whole lot has changed back there. We have Mike Williams Jr., Greg Vitello, Gerhardt, Jason, Bailey and Jed. So those are sort of the bookends of the um, of the race there and everything else in between. Looks like everybody is working their way down the trail. Uh, it looks like uh, everybody with the exception of Greg is either into Nikolai or out. And the rest are in Takatna, probably doing their 24-hour rest. And a few of them 
are in Ofer and on their way. It looks like Wade is on his way. I believe the next checkpoint is Iditarod. Is that right, uh, Tony? Yeah, Wade's on his way to Iditarod in the halfway point. And I believe we talked about this off air. A lot of it's running together now, but Wade is really the only one so far that has not, at least in the front runners, that has not declared his 24. Is that right? That's right. Everybody else uh, that's in the lead pack, they're in Takatna taking their 24. Nicholas Petit is just a few miles out of Takatna. He's breaking up his run to go straight to um, at least Ofer. I'm guessing he's going to break it up actually to go to Iditarod. And as I'm talking, he just started moving again. But um, Mars, it looks like he's going to Iditarod to do his 24, which he'll be the only one doing that. So Iditarod, it's listed at mile 432. And remember, guys, this is not a true 1,049-mile race. I believe it's, uh, well, it is close to 998, according to uh, this year's um trail miles and remember that changes a bit every year based on trail conditions and all that so it looks like wade is going to go just about halfway to the finish before he takes this 24 what do you think about that strategy if if you could share um you know it's it's always tough to say i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if it works out for him um, he stayed further back in the pack, uh, very early in the race. He was the only one to take a break in Yetna way back on day one, which, uh, was quite amusing to everyone. Uh, he even made a few jokes on the insider broadcast about how he was just chilling there while everybody went through. That's not normally something you see from a competitive team or even a top, you know, just, uh, even mid distant middle of the pack to even back of the pack, you don't really see people breaking there anymore. So that was something interesting. Um, I, I, we've been talking about it on social media all day. You know, what is Wade thinking? Not necessarily as a judgment so much as just, you know, what does Wade know that we don't know about what's coming? Um, they've had snow and freezing rain on the trail today from basically Nikolai all the way through to Katna and most likely to Iditarod. We don't really know. We don't have a trail report going from uh, Ofer to Iditarod. So Wade's kind of the bunny rabbit now, and he's also the guinea pig. They're all kind of waiting to see how Wade does and what to expect, because not only do we have the mixed precipitation of freezing rain and snow, but we also have those warmer temperatures, which means the trail is probably not setting up and everybody's worried that it's going to be that mashed potato snow punchy trail. Um, so it'll be interesting to see when he comes into Iditarod and we start getting some reports back from Wade's run, just what to expect for this next leg. Yeah, it is definitely going to be interesting. And we're going to talk a little bit about the checkpoint of Iditarod in just a second. But before we do, since we're talking about Nikolai and McGrath and Ofer and those checkpoints, there is a pretty cool story that just broke today about a sled dog rescue organization that's based right here in the Matsu Valley in Chugiak, Alaska, as a matter of fact. What do you know about uh, what they're up to? 
Sure. So the rescue organization is called the August Fund. I believe their tagline is from race trail to couch or something like that. Um, and they started when um, mushers like Jim Lanier were looking to find homes for their retired sled dogs. Um, most kennels do keep their retired dogs. Uh, they keep them from puppyhood all the way through um, with very little going out to other teams, um, you know, for the right price or, or just to kind of get new blood into different kennels so that they're not completely inbred. Um, but a lot of, you know, kennels, they also understand that that's not the life for every dog, especially as they get older. And so they try to find them recreational homes or even just a home that can give them their golden senior years, some much needed care and love away from the hubbub of a busy uh, sled dog kennel. And so that's originally what August Fund was about. They're now also taking in recreational sled dogs from all over the state. And there are two two-year-old, roughly two-year-old uh, dog, sled dogs in Nikolai. Their owner financially could not take care of them anymore. They're out of dog food. They were kind of, they were trying to rehome them, could not find anybody to take these two dogs and reached out to August Fund saying, you know, we, we don't have any way to care for these dogs anymore. If we can't find them homes, we're going to have to euthanize them is essentially my understanding of it. And so uh, August Fund reached out to Iditarod asking if there was any way they could get the dog food from the drop bags of the teams that have gone through to that musher or owner, not actually 100% sure that it's a musher, um, get that food to those dogs until the August fund could get those dogs flown back to the Matsu Valley area where they can now um, send them on. Iditarod said, sure. Um, and I just got a message just a few minutes ago saying that, that she is going to get the drop bag food. One of the dogs will be flying um, out tomorrow, weather permitting, and then the other dog will be uh, flown out on Sunday, and then they'll be driven up to Kaylin Davis and Justin Olms. Kaylin, of course, ran, I believe, last year's Iditarod, um, and they will be fostering those two dogs at their kennel in Fairbanks. Yeah, that's a cool story, and those guys do really great work. I've had a chance to have, to have them on a couple of times over the years to talk about all the work that they're doing and any type of rescue is just, you know, it, it's tireless work that, uh, you know, it takes a special type of person to do that. And uh, we definitely commend them for taking care of a lot of these uh, retired sled dogs. And as you mentioned, they're not just Iditarod dogs. They're from other kennels now as well, from recreational kennels and whatnot, because it, it unfortunately it is, a big deal in our community when a musher falls on hard times for whatever reason or another, and they cannot take care of their dogs and organizations like this have the ability to step up. And I would urge all of you guys to go check out the And uh, if you're so inclined, maybe donate a few dollars to them or at least read their stories and reach out or possibly even share uh, their posts on social media. I know that they're very active on Facebook. So definitely check out the August Fund. Let's move on. 
So we've had a couple of questions come in in the last couple of days. And one of the prevailing questions is, are all the checkpoints up and running and rocking and rolling again? And I know that over the last few years, especially with COVID and vaccine requirements and all that, things have really been different uh, on the trail. And I think we can report that everything is rocking and rolling. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about the checkpoint of Iditarod? Of course, that's the namesake of the race. And we were just talking about Wade Mars potentially taking a break there. What do you know about Iditarod? Well, Iditarod is now a ghost town, although it was once a bustling community of over 10,000 people, which at this point in time is well more than what we have here in our not-so-bustling community of Willow, Alaska. Um, it was the heart of an Iditarod uh, mining district, and that's how the trail got its name. Dog teams used to haul supplies and mail into this area and were the laden, and I should say their sleds were filled with gold for their routine return trips. So this was between 1908 and 1925. And at that time, there was about $35 million in gold that was taken from the area. And gold at that time was worth around $20 an ounce. So imagine what that could be in today's uh, world. I did a rod marks the halfway point as Robert uh, and Tony mentioned. It is on the Southern Trail and it is signified or sponsored by GCI as they give a halfway award at Iditarod. And it looks like uh, unless something changes out there, Wade will claim that award. And we'll talk a little bit about that word, award tomorrow and what it is and what they receive and all of that. So, Tony, uh, you know a little bit about this um, uh, back to normal status. What do you know? Uh, everything so far is back to normal. There aren't any villages that I'm aware of that have asked the race to stay outside of them, as we've seen in the last few years. Obviously, we are running to Nome again this year, so and they're not having to change the route or anything, as we saw in um, 2021, where they did the gold loop, which was actually bringing it back to talking about uh, the ghost town of Iditarod. That's where... Um, that was the original trail that Joe Reddington wanted to do. He wanted to go out to the ghost town of Iditarod and come back. Um, and then he was convinced that it would be cooler to run across Alaska and finish in Nome, which I don't disagree. I, you know, I, I think that was a good idea too. Um, but as far as the, the COVID protocol, that's all kind of set aside um, I do know that Rob Erbach said before race starts, uh, a few weeks before the race started, that if there were to be any sort of, you know, outbreak of COVID, then things would change a little bit. And they did have things put into place as kind of a plan B. Didn't really expand on that to tell us what would happen. I would assume it would be something similar to what we saw in 2020 when COVID hit all over the world and then the villages started shutting down again. But I don't see that happening. 
um, the village elders in Nikolai were very welcoming, very excited to have not only the mushers come back doing the normal thing, but they also um, were excited to see the tourists. McGrath was fully open. Takatna is not only fully open, but the kitchen is open for business. They've been feeding the mushers on their 24. Lots of pie, lots of cake. I've heard about cheeseburgers and other foods uh, being dished out. So everything feels like a normal Iditarod in that way. And if you guys remember, they had something very similar to the other professional sports over the last few years where they had a bubble where, you know, the, the, the mushers and the volunteers and the vets and everybody were sort of in this very contained area. And several of the checkpoints, uh, the, the mushers and the crews could not come into the villages, especially there at the height of COVID in 2020 and 2021, of course. I have a question for you, Tony, that I do not have an answer to, but as we talked about in our kickoff show, they alternate between the northern route and the southern route uh, on alternate years, of course, unless uh, there is some kind of special circumstance and they have to run that Fairbanks route that they've done a couple of times, and then the gold loop, as as you mentioned. It's my understanding, and maybe you can clarify, that the reason that it switches back and forth is mainly so they can spread the love, if you will, between the villages. They didn't want just one side of the trail to get you know, all the attention, but now they have a heck of a lot of the communities served on both sides. Am I wrong there? Is there more to that story? Nope, that's essentially what it is. They wanted to um, bring Iditarod to more communities. Uh, It's a big deal. It's something that these communities, they plan for and they, um, you know, take time off of. School is in session, but whenever the dog teams come in, the kids run out in the bigger uh, villages that that have an actual school program. Um, So it's it's one of those things that Iditarod signals the changing of the season, I think, for everybody. we, we have it here, you know, down in South Central in Anchorage. It's part of the Ferrandi event, which, of course, is kind of the celebration of, hey, we survived another winter and spring is on its way. Um, we start off with the Ferrandi sprint races. We end with Iditarod as our finale for Ferrandi. And then spring, as you and I have both talked about the last few days, spring is definitely showing itself in South Central. And it's seems to follow the dogs as they go across Alaska. So I think there's just a lot of um, excitement, not just for the dogs, but what Iditarod means uh, to everyone, whether it does mean just celebrating uh, the history of the sled dog or if it's celebrating the sun is back and it's melting. (laughs) Yes. And do you happen to know the year when they uh, started doing that switch? You know, I knew you were going to ask that, but then you asked me the other question, so I stopped Googling. So I don't have that answer right now. <laughs> okay, if, if you if you get it as we go, definitely chime in and let us know, because I think a lot of people would like to know that one. So let's jump into a couple of more stories before we get into the meat of the day, where a lot of people are really asking questions and providing answers and all that. Let's talk a little bit about um, what's happening with uh, the, the last few checkpoints, as we've mentioned, but there's been a lot of talk and we've gotten several questions about 
sleds breaking down or sleds not getting to where they're supposed to be uh, in terms of, hey, I wanted this. I should have had it in McGrath, but now it's in Takatna and it should have been, you know, 100 miles back or whatever the mileage is. So the first question that somebody asked was about Katie Joe Dieter. And there was a story possibly on Insider where she was getting some assistance in helping her repair her sled. It's my understanding that she broke a couple of her stanchions. The stanchions are pretty much what attaches the driving bow to the runners of the sled. They are the up and down uh, sticks, if you will, uh, whether they're graphite or wood or metal or whatever, that's pretty much what holds the sled upright. And it's my understanding that she broke a couple of those and had to get some assistance. And I asked you, Tony, if you knew, is that considered outside assistance? And why was it allowed uh, with Katie Joe? And why wasn't she penalized or whatever, if that's the rule? So I don't really have like an official answer, um, but this is nothing new. Um, we see this type of assistance very often, whether it's um, helping fix a runner on a sled or a stanchion um, to, you know, possibly even um, sewing up a sled bag and that sort of thing. It's not considered something that is going to give them undue advantage. They have a race judge that approves any and all sorts of assistance. Um, I don't even know if assistance is the correct word, um, but it is, it's, it's something that we see every year. It doesn't seem to matter who it is, uh, whether it's a, a rookie or someone a little more well-known. Um, if it doesn't look like, you know, it, as long as they're not putting a rocket booster on the back of her sled, it's fine. Um, you know, if they're just making it so that dogs and humans make it safely down the trail until they can get to another sled um, or what have you, that's fine. It's just like if um, another musher, you know, has a sled back in, in a checkpoint and somebody else comes along. I'm thinking like Milliporcel last year or Wade Mars a few years ago. Mitch CV had already left. He left his old sled behind. Um, he had continued on. They come in, their sleds are totally banged up. There's no way that they can continue on the sleds that they have unless they really do some MacGyver maneuvers and, and create a new sled somehow. Um, and Mitch, you know, they, they, get, they, they call ahead, you know, hey, ask Mitch or ask mushers that have left sleds if we can use one of these to some of the other mushers. It's kind of the same thing. The musher himself is not doing the footwork the the checkers are checkers are official with the the Iditarod race so it's a little bit different than some random dude on a snow machine coming and getting me getting you um I I don't know I I really don't know you know it's a gray area it's one of those things that the the race judge gets to choose you know just how far is it from normal assistance to outside assistance and a no-no and from a musher's perspective, I had mentioned uh, just a second ago that uh, the stanchions are often made out of graphite or wood or metal. But for years, a lot of mushers would use old hockey sticks. They proved to be a very viable sled material. One of our uh, bomb-proof sleds that we have down in the kennel that we still use today more than 20 years ago is made out of 
four hockey sticks, and it has taken a beating, including flying out of the back of our truck on Interstate 80 in Wyoming and picked up by a construction worker. And we saw it going down the, down the highway. We said, hey, that looks like a dog sled. And it happened to be ours, and we didn't even know it flew off. But anyway, Michelle had wrote a quick note here saying that all mushers should carry an extra hockey stick or two and a roll of Gorilla Tape, and they could fix their sleds just about in any checkpoint. And that's that's not a bad idea for sure. I'm sure you could probably, as you said, Tony, MacGyver a sled with just about anything. And I've heard the stories. I've never had this problem myself, but I've heard of the stories of people using, you know, baling twine and, and wire and willows and all sorts of stuff to to get back on the race trail. Because if you don't have a sled, obviously you can't go much further. And that leads to the second part of this story. Tony, you were talking about off air about a lot of mushers had intended to ship out a second sled. That's common strategy. Mm-hmm. But some of them... Um, send it to the wrong place where they thought they would need it. And now it's further down the trail than they needed it to be. And theirs is busted up or whatever. And they're trying to get them back where they're at. What do you know about that? Yeah. So uh, there are several more than I know, I'm sure. But the two big ones that people are talking about today, um, first one was Ryan Reddington. And it, it, that conversation started last night because he blew through McGrath and went on to Takatna, which he had told everyone apparently before the race start that he was planning to stop in McGrath. That's where he sent his sled, which to be fair, every musher sends it to McGrath. And then if they want it in a different checkpoint, then it gets trucked or, or snow machined or whatever to uh, the, uh, the outlying checkpoints because McGrath is the hub there. But um, he just blew through. He didn't stay long enough. To, to change sleds that takes too much time and he had other teams right behind him and he decided he was going to go up uh, the I think it's the 20 miles to Takatna or whatever it is um, and do his 24 there and he spent most of today trying to find someone who would go get the sled and bring it to him. Um, Meredith Mapes answered uh, questions on Twitter today people asking about that you know is that outside assistance and she said, no, again, you know, that's one of the things that, the, you know, as long as the race judge is aware and says, yes, that you can do, typically what you have to do is have a couple bucks in your pocket, hand it off to um, a villager, you know, to pay for gas or whatever of their snow machine, and they'll go get it for you and bring it in. Um, so that's what he was hoping to do in his insider video this afternoon. He said that he'd found someone to go get the sled. He was just hoping that it would make it there in time for him to leave tonight. Um, and then Gerhardt, Piart, of course, one of our favorites from last year who didn't quite make it to Nome, and so he's back again to try again. Um, he rode into McGrath. Uh, was it McGrath? Yes, it was McGrath. Sorry. It's all starting to blur together, as you said. Uh, he rode into McGrath today thinking everything was great. He was getting ready to take his 24. And the guy checking him in was like, wow, that's a really bad break. And Gerhardt's like, what are you talking about? The checker points it out to him that his uh, runner is cracked in half, like broken completely, and it's noticeable. And Gerhardt's like, huh, I wonder when that happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
problem was he and Mitch had decided that if the sled was going to break, it was going to break on the run into Nikolai. So they shipped the sled to Nikolai, but it wasn't broken in Nikolai. He said, I, I checked it. You know, I put new plastic on the runners. It was fine. So it had to have happened between Nikolai and McGrath. So now he's sitting in McGrath trying to figure out how am I going to get the sled from Nikolai to McGrath. Um, and he's also said that if he can't get it there in time, that Kelly Maxner has swapped for a lighter sled there in McGrath. So he'll be able to use Kelly's sled. He's already gotten permission for that. Problem is, he says, Kelly's sled bag, while it is bigger and greener than what Kelly's going to be running once he leaves McGrath, it's not big enough for Gerhardt, who apparently still has the that rookie ness of just sending so much crap in the sled bag and out on the trail that uh, he says he needs his sled that's in Nikolai because it's bigger and it can fit his kitchen sink. The rookie bump, as they call it. You were talking about sending <laughs> um, sending uh, folks that live there in the villages down the trail to pick up uh, sleds, for, like you said, from Nikolai to McGrath. And that's a pretty good distance. That's about 50 miles uh, between those two. So that would be a hundred mile round trip. They're not going to do that for five bucks. Definitely for sure. I would no. imagine that's uh, a <laughs> dang near a, a tank of gas. And I have no idea what gas prices are in Nikolai or McGrath, but I would bet you would at least have to have a hundred dollar bill to, to make things easy to be able to get that sled. So things are not cheap in, in uh, the interior of Alaska by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Tony, before we move on, you had talked a little bit about strategy, about where people are taking their 24s, and you also mentioned Mitch Seavey. And I read a story uh, from him today on Facebook about uh, the strategy of just going a few miles further. And he talked about that 20-mile uh, run from McGrath to Takatna and about the, the run rest time and the, the deficit the dogs have and all that. I know that that's a lot of, I did a math as they call it, but that was a pretty <laughs> illuminating article, wasn't it? Yeah, I shared it on Twitter and on Facebook because, you know, I'm going to share just about anything that man posts when it comes to dog training, dog running, dog anything. Um, but it, it was, you know, for me, it was very much like the teacher in, in peanuts, the wah, 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 cause math and I do not get along at all. Um, but it, it is, I mean, it plays into it. I think those that study the stats and study strategy from years past, they're the ones that do well and really start to progress. And Wade is one of those. Wade has studied for years. He took a page out of Dallas Phoebe's book many years ago and started studying the history of just about every champion. And not just the champions, but some of those that, you know, just have all of those successful runs, very few scratches. Um, and it, it's paid dividends for Dallas Phoebe. Uh, it could pay dividends for Wade. I'm really excited to see him out there trying this uh, thing out, but there are teams behind him that look super strong and we'll really have to see, hopefully Insider gets a crew out there and we get to see some footage, if not live 
pretty quickly after so that we can kind of gauge just what his dogs look like and if he pushed maybe a little too hard like Mitch warned. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie, Tony. I copied that uh, article and and saved it on my photos because I like that strategy that he had, especially about the deficit. I, I you know, I I've thought mm-hmm. a lot about racing over the years, but I never really got that deep into the idea math, and it makes a heck of a lot of sense, especially when he talked about the deficit. And I think that that's really cool to share. So if you are a math nerd. Definitely check that out. One final question about Mitch. He seems to do quite a bit of reporting this year. I know we talked about Danny Seavey coming in coming in later in the race as things begin to develop. But is Mitch out of his comfort zone a little bit? I know he's not often sitting on the couch during the first couple of weeks of March. He's typically out on the trail. But he's doing some pretty good reporting, isn't he? Uh, Yeah, and that's not surprising, actually. If you've ever gotten the chance to just even be a fly on the wall when Mitch gets talking about strategy and run rest and and all of that, just anything, it's pretty, pretty awesome. He doesn't always talk. Everybody thinks that he's this, like, grumpy old dude who just isn't any fun to talk to. And that's just not the case. He's introverted. Like, I know nobody believes this because they hear me on podcasts and they see me online. Um, But I'm very introverted as well. So I think that's why Mitch and I get along. We kind of get each other um, in that way. But uh, he, he is a wealth of knowledge. He's been with this race since the beginning. He helped his dad train that first CV Iditarod team for 1973. Um, so he knows this race better than just about anyone, um, unless, you know, your, your last name is Mackey or Smith. So uh, it's, it, it's not surprising that he's doing that. I did actually talk to Dan Seavey, um, Mitch's dad, in the, uh, the hotel lobby one night, and uh, we were talking about uh, Mitch not being able to run this year because of an injury. And Dan said, you know, back in 2021, when Mitch didn't run and Dallas did, uh, he said everybody was wishing that Mitch was out on the trail because it just was very difficult for Mitch. And and uh, it was difficult for everybody else dealing with Mitch not being able to run. So um, I'm sure that we will see him back on the runners and not as an analyst in the future as long as he does what doctors tell him to do and recuperates instead of re-injuring his shoulder, which again, I got that little insight from his dad the other night. So um, uh, yeah, I I love it. It gives a a new vibe. You know, Danny's very good at his reporting, but he also does a lot of copy and paste from blogs from the years past. So getting this new perspective is always nice. And speaking of perspective, just about every team out there has some really great coverage. And we're going to talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. that in our Musher profile in just a second. But we're going to have Michelle jump in. Last night, she did a canine science segment talking about thermoregulation in dogs. Tonight, you have a fun facts segment. What can you tell us? Well, with a little bit of science mixed in too. So I thought I would bring up some fun facts that some people may already know, but others may not. And let's start off with dog sledding has been in existence for around 4,000 years. 
sled dogs consume about 10,000 calories a day. And to be considered a good sled dog, the dog needs to be lean, strong, attentive, and ready for the cold. Also, sled dogs helped Ice Age humans to survive. According to Science, which is a journal, (laughs) ancient dogs adapted for freezing cold helped early humans survive in the Arctic more than 10,000 years ago. The study compares the genetics of modern sled dog breeds, including the Alaskan and Siberian Huskies, used for dog sled racing, as well as Alaskan Malamutes and Greenland dogs, to DNA from a dog that lived 9,500 years ago on Zakov Island above the Arctic Circle in eastern Siberia, where archaeological evidence for early dog sleds had been found. The researchers determined that the sled dog breeds and the ancient dog share many of the same genes, forming a distinct lineage that reveals the antiquity of sled dogs and hints at their importance to human survival as humans spread into the Arctic near the end of the last ice age. Cool facts. I'm sure we could probably go on and on about those. And for folks that are new to mushing radio, uh, Michelle, uh, who happens to be my wife and business partner, also hosts our pretty popular Dog Works radio show every Sunday. And that's where this feed has lived for the last decade plus. But now it's on its own and blossoming pretty well. So thank you not only for that, Michelle, but for joining us right here on our coverage this year as well. So, Tony, let's talk about... Actually, nope. We need to we need to back up just a second. We can't talk about our our question of the day. We're going to talk about our musher of the day, and that is Ramy Smith, the three of us favorite musher. He's a local musher here in Willow. He shares the trails with us. He and his wife Becca and their little kids are are one of the few people here on the east side of the Parks Highway, and it's always fun to see them out there. He's a hardworking man for sure. Uh, Michelle, what do you know about Ramey? Well, I know that Ramey is 47 years old, and he's from right here in Alaska. He is of, you know, a legacy family, if you will. He is the Mm -hmm. son of Iditarod Mushers Bud Smith, and Bud raced in the first Iditarod and the late Lolly Medley, who raced in the second Iditarod, was Ramey's mom. Ramey has lived all over the state, but says he moved to Willow to put down roots and build a home for his family. And if any of you know, Ramey builds some beautiful log homes and he Mm -hmm. operates a business called Smith Log Work and Construction right here in Willow. Uh, Ramey has raced the Iditarod 26 times, placing in the top 10 12 times. He won the Cusco 300 in 1995, and he has raced in and won many other events throughout the state. He began mushing as soon as he could walk. He 
He won the Junior Iditarod twice before his first Iditarod in 1994. He and his family, as Robert said, Becca and their three children, Ava, Banyan, and Coral, all live right here on our side of the highway, the better side of the highway, I might add. <laughs> um, and uh, he enjoys not only mushing and sharing the trails and outdoors with his children, but I know that he does enjoy helping put those trails in that connect all of our little neighborhoods together. Otherwise, we would never see each other. Isn't that right, Robert? A hundred percent. So... Tony, I understand that you have more to add to this, and you also got to ch- got a chance to talk to his quote-unquote better half. What do you know? So, you know, instead of just going with what is published out there as a bio or race stats, I've decided that I'm going to try, when possible, to talk to family or handlers or someone who knows the smusher better than a little bio or that knows them better than the musher does as the musher is the one writing those bios. Um, So I I asked Becca a couple of questions. The first one was the same one that I I asked uh, for Aaron Peck yesterday, but I asked, what is the one thing you want fans to know who Ramey is and what makes him tick? And she answered, one of the things that makes Ramey tick is challenging situations. He definitely thrives. When things get difficult, when the weather is miserable or the trail rough, he seems to shine in those kind of conditions. My second question was a little different than what I asked uh, of Peck's family. And I said, what is one thing he never races without that's out of the ordinary, if anything? And she said, Ramey pretty much carries just the regular mushing gear, but it might be more interesting to know what he never takes on the race. He never takes music, his phone, or a camera. So I never get to see photos from the trail, even after all these years, brownie face. Um, So just kind of interesting. I think she's right. It's very interesting that he doesn't take any of what we hear most of these mushers take. He doesn't take music, or which I assume also means he doesn't listen to books, uh, audio books either. Uh, He doesn't take his phone, which a lot of mushers don't supposedly take their phone. Uh, It wouldn't work in most places anyway, but it's also interesting because ACS is his sponsor and they used to do phone and cell phones. So I just thought that was kind of interesting and no camera. I mean, I, I know as a photographer, I know that it's very difficult to really live in the moment when you're, when you're doing photography, Um, you don't actually remember a lot of the image work that you produce um, when you're looking through a camera. So I'm sure that's where he, um, where he's coming from. He wants to just be in the moment like the dogs and, and just take it all in and let it be his. Um, But man, I'm with Becca. That's not fair. You get to see all of this amazing country of Alaska that nobody else gets to see and you're not going to share. That's just rude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, he he's he's an interesting character because he's grown up with this, as Michelle said from the bio, since mm-hmm. since the day he could walk. And you know, all of us are big fans of his. We've talked a lot about the Smith family over the years. We've had a bunch of interesting stories about his dad Bud and 
and all of that. And I, I really enjoy talking about uh, Ramey and, and his, his uh, accomplishments. And for folks that may not follow Iditarod as closely as others, Ramey signed up literally at the last minute this year and had to pay the uh, late entry penalty. And I believe that's typically double the entry. And I think the entry fee this year was $4,000. So if Ramey paid $8,000 to enter this race, he has something big time invested in this. Of course, it's an investment for anybody, but if you're going to pay 8,000 bucks to run this race, I think that you probably think you have a pretty good chance of pulling something off. So we're, we're definitely rooting for him. Over the last couple of days, I've I've talked a little bit about uh, where folks have finished in their careers. As Michelle said, uh, he's been doing this a long time. His first race was in 1994, and he's raced pretty consistently over that time. He has only scratched one time, if it, if it shows, and that was in 2014. It looks like his slowest finish, which is not slow by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> was his first year, and that was uh, in 1994. He came in 21st <laughs> place, and it was 12 days, 6 hours, 46 minutes. And his fastest race happened to be, he's got a lot of 8- and 9-day finishes, but it looks like 2021 was his fastest finish, and that was 8 days, 0 hours, 41 minutes, and 5 seconds. And he came in 10th place that year, and what's even more interesting, in 2011, he came in second place with a slower mm -hmm. time than the 10th place, and that was eight days, 19 hours, 50 minutes, and 59 seconds. He has total prize money of over $611,000, and that may seem like a lot of money to a lot of folks. But when you're doing this competitively, as we said last night... Well, Robert, he's feeding 70. Yeah, I was going to say, that is all going <laughs> right back into the kennel. Plus three Plus three kids. children. Yes, yes, for sure. And lastly, Michelle had mentioned uh, he is an expert craftsman with uh, uh, log homes. And I believe right here in our very neighborhood is... Two of his finest work, our, our, our neighbors, Jamie and Vern, have beautiful log homes. And I believe they were both built by Ramey, weren't they, Michelle? I believe Vern's was for sure. I'd have to ask Jamie. There you go. So that is our musher profile of the night. I really enjoyed these uh, get-to-know-you questions that you're reaching out to with, uh, with uh, these family members. I think that really adds a new flair to this. But let's jump over into our last couple of segments, and I'm really enjoying this. And that is our I did a question of the day. And lately we have been going back and talking about yesterday's previous question. And that was, I believe, and it is definitely running together. Um, <laughs> wasn't it the musher that you would most likely to follow? Is that that one or was that one previous? Uh, that was the one previous. Oh, my goodness. Today's, today's question was, what is the question you wish the media or insider would ask a musher, but they never do? Yes. We also said, what would you ask? One question of any musher. 
Um, and we got a lot of responses, mostly on Twitter. But to be fair, I had asked that question hours earlier. So Twitter got a, a huge advantage. So Twitter went out on, on answers, but only because of how things played out. Um, one of my favorite ones was uh, at Urbanite Alaska. He wrote, any musher? Hey, Herbie, tell me anything about dogs. And Herbie, of course, is the late, great Herbie Nayakpuk, the uh, Shishmaref Cannonball. <laughs> yes, way back um, in the day. Is so legendary. And if you ask a lot of mushers, uh, Mitch Seavey claims Herbie as one of his absolute favorite mushers of all time. Others do as well. Um, so I just, I, I had to share that one. Um, someone said, uh, you just won Iditarod. What are you going to do next? And we all know that the answer is going to be Disneyland, if it's Super Bowl anyway. Uh, lots of questions about training, about breeding programs. We had one that was boxers or briefs, another one that was Coke or Pepsi. Um, the, someone asked, tell me about your first dog, which apparently they just want to have a lot of, you know, give me all the feels was that question, in my opinion. Um, and then the number one question, which I know is not just the number one question for our question of the day, but any musher that I've known, one of the first questions, it doesn't matter how old the person is that's asking the question, it doesn't matter gender, it doesn't matter region or country. Uh, the number one question that I have heard mushers get is, how do you go to the bathroom when you are on the sled and it's normally I do think that it's normally more asked of the female mushers because they have to squat to do one and two but um, that was also one of the most popular answers to our question of the day <laughs> was uh, I would ask how do they go to the bathroom yeah. And, and from a musher's perspective, and uh, I, I can only speak from my male's perspective, but I've seen this on several different expeditions and, and long runs. For a male, it's pretty easy. Uh, you just handle your business uh, as quickly as possible. But I have seen and heard uh, female mushers who have made the mistake of doing their business behind the sled and then for one reason or another, the the uh, the hook pops or whatever, and there goes your team, literally with your pants down. So I guess the the rule of thumb for uh, the female mushers is to always do your business in front of the team. So in case you're stopping for a quick snack or whatever from the dogs, and you have to. Uh, do your business, definitely go to the front of the team to do what you have to do. So just a little bit of a musher's perspective. I know I'm talking to two ladies here. One of them is a musher. The other <laughs> is a ultra fan. But Michelle, I don't uh, think... No, I, no, 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 no. Do not put me in the musher rankings. I'm, I'm at best, I am at best a handler. Um, I have never had to shit in the woods or piss in front of the dogs ever 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 it horrifies me to even think about how i would make that happen with all of the clothes i have to wear yeah so, so that is a this great is why I, when i do dog mushing i bike jor 
where there's a restroom within two miles and I go home. <laughs> Very good. So, yeah, I, I, I can understand why that is the number one question uh, for sure. Uh, and, and I like it. I like hearing. Uh, I think the, that the, we need to get some of these ladies on the show. Maybe I need to come in or Tony needs to come in and ask the a lucid question because it's not appropriate for you to ask them. Well, there's there's all there and, and there's all sorts of uh, of of tech uh, that that ladies are using Apparently, nowadays. But I do apologize to anybody out there having dinner. Yeah, there you go. So let's let's uh, wrap it up with today's question, and I think this is a pretty cool one because we talked a little bit about that. Uh, when um, Tony talked to Becca, uh, Ramey's wife, and she said that Ramey does not take a camera, does not take a, uh, a phone or music or anything. So I'm interested in what his uh, one thing that he cannot leave without. I would bet, I've heard the, the, uh, the rumors that he packs a pair of running shoes. So when he gets to the coast, he laces up hey. his, his, uh, his shoes and, and takes off down the trail without those heavy boots. So I would bet that he takes a nice pair of running shoes. So the question is, the I did a question of the day. That is the hashtag. I did a question. Check it out on social. It is, what is one thing that you must take out on the Iditarod Trail? Something that you could not leave without. And uh, a portion of this is saying it could be mushing related. Would it be you know, uh, those tennis shoes or your phone or or an iPod or a cooker or a ladle or a cooler or whatever? Or could it be something that you cannot live without? Is it your fuzzy slippers or is it, uh, I don't know, what else could it be? Your sunglasses or, or... Or how about this, Tony? How about we turn the tables on the producer since he is a musher and ask him what he takes that he can't live without? And I bet you know this, Michelle, but every single race I've ever done since 2000, 2000, I have a medicine bag that I got in Hill City, South Dakota, a Native American medicine bag. And it has all sorts of stuff in there, including a couple of tufts of hair from our long lost, but very well admired sled dogs, including our buddy Aneke, which is the namesake of our kennel. I take that on every single race and it lives in my dog truck in the little uh, sunglass holder spot above the visor. And I make sure that I always take that with me on every race. Did you know that, Michelle? Yes, I did, because I'm the one that took the tufts of hair from every one of those dogs we had when we first <laughs> built our kennel. Yes. So let's turn the question to you two before we end the episode. Michelle, I don't know who's first or whatever in our little list as we're going, but what would you absolutely take on the Iditarod? Um, well, considering that I have a piece of you on my body. I stole one of your tattoos and had it um, applied to myself. Um, so I always have a piece of you with me. I would probably steal that medicine bag. Oh, man, you can't have the same thing. Is that cheating, Tony? <laughs> 
No, but that sounded really creepy the way she said I have a piece of you. Oh, I know. Well, so he has he has an armband. If a lot of you guys don't know this, but Robert has an armband tattoo that he designed himself of his very first sled dog team before he met me. And it's all of their puppy paws. And I we were at a tattoo place and I the guy said, what do you want? And I said, I want that. This was well before we were married. And the guy looked at me and he goes, well, you understand that you're locking yourself into this guy if you do that. And I'm like, I'm fully aware of what I'm doing. And so we took the <laughs> puppy paw that I chose off of Robert's armband. It belonged to a dog named Akoya. Akoye. Akoye. And it's on my foot. So... I've been married to Robert before he asked me to marry him. Pretty a much. long time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's going to be our, our, our anniversary coming up this weekend. And maybe we'll celebrate it somehow on this show. So, Tony. Oh, they usually are across the Burl Arch before our anniversary. Yes. Tony. What, uh, Tony. 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 What, <laughs> what would you take on the Iditarod Trail? Can be anything. What would you bring? Well, if it can be anything, then I'd bring my dad because, I mean, I do Iditarod with my dad every year, right? Right. So, uh, I think that's cheating. I, I don't think that I'd be actually racing Iditarod, but I would definitely need my dad because I don't do manual labor, and so he'd do it all. <laughs> well, you know, they have those fancy uh, double sleds these days that have seats on them right? or, or yep. they can stand up on the back or well, whatever. I can see your dad standing there with a bullhorn telling you what to do. <laughs> I think he reversed the tables on you. Yeah, mush, Tony, mush. And there, <laughs> there you go. But uh, speaking of that, I think that that would be a cool thing because he truly is your right hand on all of these mushing adventures. I hear... You know, he comes up with you for Iditarod, and you guys are, are back and forth when you're coming up for, for other types of things. You guys are a tandem, aren't you? Yeah, he, he calls himself my driver because he is. Um, when I would uh, photograph for the Tuscamina 200, uh, I don't like driving uh, on ice and snow and the Caribou Hills, as you know, Robert. Uh, that, that road down oil, uh, uh, yeah, oil well, uh, is not for the faint of heart. And I literally have a panic attack every time we do it. And so he drives and, you know, I'm pretty sure he slips me a Xanax and my Dr. Pepper and, <laughs> and away we go. And, um, you know, he's there, he's always an encourager. He, he, is an extrovert to the extreme. So when I am completely out of my comfort zone, I don't want to talk to the mushers. I feel like, you know, I'm just going to hide back there. He's pulling me along. He does all of the interviewing type stuff to get them comfortable so that I can take pictures and whatnot. So uh, he's, he's great. And I don't know what I would do without him when it comes to this stuff. And I had the pleasure of meeting him last week when I was down in mm -hmm. Anchorage uh, with you for a little bit. And it was a pleasure uh, meeting your dad and uh, putting a name to the face, if you will. So I have to ask before we go, uh, I'm really stumbling here today. Uh, what do you, it might, what do, it might have been the bourbon you made us for, for dinner drinks. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, to, oh rat it out. <laughs> Tony, what, what type of car do you drive and what does your dad drive um, around the state of Alaska? Uh, I have a Kia Sorento. Uh, she's a good little car. And then my dad 
has a very old GMC pickup truck that uh, he was just telling me the other day as we were driving up to Iditarod that he thinks that, you know, once mom's car is paid off and the garage mahal is finally paid off uh, in just, I think, in the next year, he said, he's going to have to get a new truck because the bottom's just rusting out of the truck he has now. And that kind of makes me sad because that truck's been through so many Iditarods and Testamina 200s. I'm like, but this is the truck. Everybody knows what it looks like. I I hear, I feel for your dad because I just lost, <laughs> I've always had a Chevy, always, since the first mm-hmm. car I ever drove was a Chevy. And now we have a driveway full of Toyotas, which are great. I love my Toyotas, <laughs> but man, my Chevy was an old, reliable beast. And it finally died last week or two weeks ago. Oh. And yeah, it's rough to let it go. Your dad's going to need a little bit of time. And just a very, oh, yeah. a very quick story about that old truck that that Michelle and I had. That was a part of, of our building of, of Alaska and our team in Eke. That thing has been on so many adventures as Tony's dad's has. It has hauled... I don't know, probably $30,000 worth of wood to build our kennel and dog houses and all of that. And, and, uh, well, 12 years of dog meat at $2,000 a month. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was a workhorse. So I would bet that a lot of mushers would say they have an old reliable out there, a truck or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, it's not the fancy dog trucks that you see driving up and down through, through the highways. There's usually an old truck involved as well. So guys, I know we went a little long today, but uh, it's uh, a little getting... bit nostalgic. You guys, I hope you liked it. Yep. We we're trying to add things <laughs> that you're not going to hear anywhere else. So tomorrow's show, we are going to be talking about what happens in this second stage. And we've talked a lot about sort of how the Iditarod is broken up on many times on this podcast, you have that first third, which is the Alaska range, that second third, which is this uh, interior part, and then onto the Yukon. And then the third third is uh, onto the coast. So Unicolite over the sea ice and then onward towards Nome. So we're dead in the middle of that second third right now. A lot of people would say the hardest part of the trail is behind them. I guess that could be argued on one side or the other, depending on who you talk to. But there's a reason why so many of those mushers put their second sleds there at McGrath or Takatna or whatever. Uh, their uh, battle-born beasts are often left behind for much lighter sleds as they move forward. And then a third sled is often there at Unicolite where... Uh, the Speed Demons pick up, and and Ramey Smith probably laces up those tennis shoes. So we're going to talk about that tomorrow, and definitely stay tuned to our Musher of the Day and any news and notes that come up. And also, we are going to do our I Did a Question as well. We love hearing those from you. Find those on social media by hashtag I Did a Question. And also do us a favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. That way you never miss an episode. And one last plug, if you like what we're doing and you want to throw some support our way, definitely check us out on patreon.com slash firstpawmedia. So on behalf of my co-host today, we will see you guys next time. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.